Hello and welcome to 30 for 30 Plus. My name is Jody Avergan. Today, behind the scenes of All In, our documentary about the 2003 World Series of Poker and the rise of poker and the poker boom, I'm joined by Keith Romer, who reported and produced that documentary, which is the second episode of our new season. It ran earlier this week. This is our bonus episode. Keith, welcome and congratulations on this piece. Thank you, Jody. Um, I am wearing my 30 for 30 podcast sweatshirt today, which we are supposed to be doing on Tuesdays. You're not wearing it. I'm not a uniform guy. Really? Yeah, it makes me anxious. But these are the most comfortable sweatshirts in podcasts. I wear it daily at home. Okay. But when I come into the office, it feels weird. It is a good house sweatshirt. We should do the usual disclaimer for listeners that if you haven't heard this episode, go back and do so, listen to it, and then come back, circle back, and listen to this bonus episode. And Keith, we have a basic set of questions that we try and touch on, and we always start with a piece of tape that didn't make it into the final episode. We spend many months uh, reporting these. We do many, many different edits. Inevitably, stuff we love, for one reason or another, doesn't end up in the final product. So what do you got? Okay, so for this show, one of the pleasures of this show is getting to go and interview a lot of the greatest poker players of all time, including the man known as the godfather of poker, Doyle Brunson. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I spent an hour and a half at Doyle Brunson's house talking with him really about the old days of poker. And he's the one with the amazing cowboy accent. Exactly. In the piece. Yeah. He, is, he is now 85 years old. He's been playing poker for 60-odd years. Uh, and he started as essentially a road gambler. We would go from one town, stay a week, go to another town, so maybe stay another week, and just make a loop across the south. Was it safe? No. It wasn't safe at all. He says he's been robbed five times, he's been arrested 40 or 50 times. People had guns, people were cheating. You had to figure out if you were going to get paid. Um, And he told me one story in particular that I think he's probably been dining out on for decades uh, about a particular game that he played uh, in a farmhouse in Texas. We were in Austin, Texas, right outside of Austin in a farmhouse. We had two poker games going for high stakes back then. And uh, the windows started breaking all over the house. And seven guys came in with shotguns and ski masks. They made us drop our pants and put our hands up against the wall. And they searched us and took all of our money. And, and so anyway, this guy, a uh, little short guy, is five foot tall. I'll never forget him. He turned me around and he said, who runs this game, big boy? You know, you didn't snitch on people back in those days. And I said, I don't know. And he hit me in in the stomach with the shotgun. And he said, who runs this game? I said, I told you, I don't know. And he had one of those old-fashioned shotguns. He cocked both hammers, and he set it right between my eyes. And he said, I'm going to ask you one more time. I said, who runs this game? I said, that guy right down there in the green shirt. <laughs> I, I love that story. I love that he also says, we didn't, we, you didn't snitch on people back in those days, as if, you know, something has changed now. Um, but this notion of... Even into the 90s, we sort of say this in the piece, but even to the 90s and early 2000s, poker had this reputation. We, in the course of editing this piece, you know, had versions where we did a lot of that, the backstory of poker, poker's CD roots, and then this was an inflection point. But how important is that to understanding what it is that happened in 2003? I mean, I think in some ways, 2003 for poker is the beginning of this shift in popular consciousness around poker. Um, It's the first time that poker really becomes mainstream. Suddenly, your neighbor, your friend is starting to play it. You can play online, so Mm -hmm. you can play at home. You don't have to go to the shady back room. 
Um, and it, it really starts to shift in the consciousness from this thing that essentially criminals and outlaws do to something that like smart, mathy kids in hoodies start to do. Yeah. Uh, like most big moments in time and history, it's a bunch of different factors that come together and we explore them. There's just this natural shift. There's online, as you said, there's the movie Rounders, which I want to get into about how big of a deal that was. And then there was putting it on television. But I, I want to keep you on this sort of CD backstory because we we hinted at a little bit of this notion of Binion's, the place where this tournament takes place, having its own kind of insane backstory of its own. I feel like you kind of wanted to just do a Binion's documentary. I still, point. if anyone out there is looking to fund a, a 45 minute podcast about Benny Binion, you know, any you rival know. sports documentary podcast out there, you can, yeah, you yeah, can yeah. go poach Keith. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's all but what, about, so what's the deal with Binion? So, okay. So, so Benny Binion, uh, was a Texas based, let's call him a gambler. Let's call him a gangster. Uh, he originally started out running the numbers, and then he moved into sort of underground illegal casinos in Dallas. Uh, at some point in the 40s, his paid-for and bought sheriff lost an election. And so he knew it was time to get out of town. The law was going to close in. So the story goes, he put a million dollars in a suitcase and drove to Las Vegas and started getting into the Las Vegas casino business, the one place where you could you know, legally run a, mm -hmm. a, a gambling hall. He was famous for being willing to take any bet of any size. In other places, you would go in, you could only bet you know, $500 at the craps table. He said, your first bet is your limit. So if you came in and you put down $10,000, $50,000, $100,000, you could bet that much, he would take the bet. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, Binion's then has this kind of storied career. It's, it's in downtown Las Vegas. It, it eventually gets eclipsed by the Strip and the new casino's there. The PR director for Binion's, Nolan Dalla, made a real point of this. While the rest of the strip was shining and glimmering and fountains and animal acts, Binion's had none of that. It also runs into trouble when Benny himself goes away to federal prison for a couple of years for tax evasion. His children take over. Ted Binion, uh, one of his sons, has some drug problems, is eventually murdered by allegedly his stripper girlfriend. We owed everybody in town money. Uh, we had a murder trial that consumed this city's attention and much of the country for about a year and a half, where the, one of the owners of the casino was was murdered by a stripper. And, uh, you know, these are not the headlines you want if you're running a casino. So Binion's at the point that we come into the story. In 2003, Binion's is really on the downslope. Uh, and in fact, uh, in January of the following year of 2004, U.S. Marshals come into the casino, seize the cage, and Binion's, as we know it, is functionally shut down. It's then purchased by Harrah's uh, later that year, and the World Series of Poker changes hands. But it was the, the, the same place where just the previous summer, the World Series of Poker that got all these huge ratings on ESPN and sort of broke poker into the mainstream consciousness took place in that same place that then was seized by federal marshals. Yeah, Eight the, months later or whatever? Yeah, the cage was. The, the cage, i.e. like right. the where the where the cash is held yeah. at the casino. They went in and said, you have these unpaid debts to your pension funds. We're taking this $5 million or however much money there was there. And that was the end of Binion's owning a casino, the Binion family. That was the end of the casino. I think I'm having regrets about pushing this story away from being the Benny Binion story. That's pretty remarkable. So let's, but let's talk about the lens that we ended up choosing, which, you know, roughly put is it's about – storytelling. It's about uh, Matt Morantz is one of our pro protagonists. He was 441 Productions. He was the one who pitched us to ESPN. So, you know, what did you learn, Keith, about storytelling when you were telling the story of how these storytellers turned poker 
into a story? Is this a little snaky yeah, tail kind of thing? Yeah, you nailed that one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think anytime you go as a journalist or a documentarian and try to cover a live event, certainly a live event with 839 participants, you're kind of just taking your best guess at what you need to be covering. And so I think part of what was fascinating about this is this was Matt Morantz's first attempt to cover a poker tournament. And his original strategy was, well, I want to follow the people who are going to win, right? So he's he's locked in on the Phil Hellmuth and the Johnny Chans and the Doyle Brunsons of the world, and they all get knocked out of the tournament. Um, and so this idea of how you, first of all, how you construct a story that has that many threads, right? How you condense it down to a narrative that is understandable and enjoyable, but also how you do that when you don't know even what you should be covering in the first place. Mm -hmm. We talked about this a fair amount in conceiving this piece and even in editing it. But, you know, I'm curious what you feel like is unique to poker about this. Or is this the case where you could take almost anything and put a smart filmmaker or, you know, TV producer on it, put it on ESPN, which has a, you know, sort of built in huge audience, and you could turn anything into a thing. So they turned poker into a thing, but it could have been darts or it could have been beanbag or it could have been whatever. I, I do wonder about that. I think to a certain extent that is true, right? You can tell an exciting, interesting story with stakes about anything, right? There's a certain level of craft. You know, you see this in podcasting. You should say you, you moonlight at, at times for Planet Money, a, a great podcast on NPR, which kind of almost has a masochistic streak on can we take a really arcane, boring thing and turn it into really compelling podcasting so you know what you're talking right, about. Right. My last – literally my last story for them was a conference about central banking. So, yes, you can you can turn <laughs> – And you made it – I heard it and it was like interesting listening. Right. So you, so there, to an extent, that is true. Um, but I think that that within poker – um, and part of the reason that I've been attracted to it over the years as a subject, something that you can write about and tell stories about, is that there are literally built-in stakes. It's very easy to follow, oh, this person's going to win two and a half right. million dollars. Whereas like he's going to win the Scrabble championship. Right. Well, you have to sort of believe in that as a, as a payoff. Um, but also these characters and these people, particularly back then, were – cut from a different cloth. They were not the same kind of people that you necessarily went to work with, that you went to college mm -hmm. with, whatever. Um, that's maybe less so true now. Like well, that's you, kind of the point of the story, right? The regular dudes you went to college with all of a sudden could work their way in. Uh, right. So so I think, uh, I think there is, particularly at this moment, a way in which poker was special. I would also say there is, there's a kind of vicarious thrill to it. I remember watching these early World Series broadcasts myself, um, and I was by then at sort of the beginning of playing poker myself. And I would watch these, and I would immediately want to gamble. There's a, there's an almost pornographic aspect mm -hmm. of well-made shows about poker to people who are already inclined to poker. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I found interesting, actually, was Matt Morantz talking about how they filmed peeling up the whole cards, that they were not just showing the cards, but they were showing the way that you looked at the cards. He thought it was, it was really critical to show the peaks, literally the players looking at their whole cards. You would see the cards like coming up and then bam, wow, he has aces, it's amazing. And he did that every single time. If you're already a poker player, makes you feel like, oh, that could be me, I'm seeing yeah myself pulling up two aces and that's exciting yeah for sure um okay we're gonna take a quick break and then when we get back i want to talk a little bit about your life in poker and what it was like to interview some of the biggest names in poker we'll do that in a second first a quick word from our sponsor
All right, we're back. And Keith, uh, I don't know, give us a little sketch of your relationship to poker because you're not just a journalist. Uh, this was a story that kind of really mattered to you. I'm not just a journalist. I also have a gambling problem. <laughs> um, Mom, I don't. I don't have a gambling problem. It's under control. Yeah, I, uh, I think part of the reason this story appealed to me is that I was really brought into playing poker by a story myself. This author, James McManus, wrote a piece in Harper's I think about the 99 World Series of Poker, if I have it right. And he had been assigned to cover the role of women professional poker players and instead took his advance money from Harper's, bought his way into the World Series of Poker, and ended up finishing fifth. He was sort of moneymaker before moneymaker. Yeah. And I remember reading that article. I was must have been 22 or something. And deciding, oh, I need to have a poker game at my house. I'm going to learn how to play poker. And so I started playing in home games. I started playing casinos. I started playing in underground clubs in New York City. And it's this world that is really compelling to me, both because of the chance of making money and, again, the literal stakes and also the people that you're rubbing elbows with that you would never run into in any other in any other sort of walk of life. It's almost like the subway where you get on the subway and you see, oh, this is the width and breadth of mm -hmm. humanity – the same thing is true in a poker room. I mean, it's men. It's largely men, 90% men. But in terms of like races and classes and social backgrounds, and in New York City, you're sitting on one side of you as a black guy and one side of you as a Dominican guy. There's an Orthodox Jew across the table. The, the, everybody is there. They're going to sit there for 12 hours and play poker. Right. And so, I mean, how I have never accepted an invitation to play poker with you. I'm, I'm, I'm smart in that way. But I mean, how good, how good are you? Or, uh, did you bu ever bubble up into World Series of Poker territory? No, I'm, I'm good, but I'm not great. I would say if I were to go play in the World Series of Poker now, particularly, I would get killed. But I, I win more than I yeah. lose. You know, I can go to the one-two game at, at whatever, the Borgata in Atlantic City, and I will win more often than I lose. And that's about the limit of it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so one other person who was about that, or maybe even worse, was Chris Moneymaker. I mean, I'm not joking when I said I am probably was like number 800 out of 839 is skill level in that tournament. This was part of what we were trying to figure out as we went. I kept asking you this, like, how good was Chris Moneymaker for real? Is he being self-effacing here because it's narratively interesting for him to now say that he really was bad, but was he genuinely bad? I think that he was an above average recreational player. Um, and I think that the standard of play in 2003 was much lower generally yeah. than it is today. The game has really gotten much more mathematically sophisticated than it was at that time. And be, and just the internet has let people get like reps in, right? You can just play and well, play. Well, both, and both play reps and, play. and data right. um, because there are now these tracking uh, programs that will allow you to sort of keep track of what everybody's doing and what percentages they're playing this and that in other situations and yourself. And so in a way, like analytics has come to poker the same way it has to basketball and baseball and everything else. But, so I would say that Chris was a strong player, but he was not a world-class professional player. And especially back then, the world of those 839 players, probably two or 300 of them were world-class players, the best players in the world. And he, he had no business playing with them. But he ran very well. The cards <laughs> really broke his way. Um, and, he was, and he was an aggressive enough player, enough of a gambler, that he was putting himself out there. He was, he was right. letting, if fate was going to smile on him, he was going to get the full benefit of that smile. And he did. And that's the other thing to emphasize. I think we do it in the piece, but it's like he was genuinely lucky. Like he had a great run. Yeah. Right. So l let's come back to this notion of storytelling and what Ma Matt Morantz was trying to do and how this came together as a perfect story that took off on ESPN. How critical is 
Chris Moneymaker's run to that. Because so much of this piece, we hear from people saying, like, we were focusing on the stars, we were focusing on the stars. Even at the final table, we thought this Chris Moneymaker guy was going to be nobody. Did they genuinely not realize what they had on their hands uh, in Chris Moneymaker, whose last name is Moneymaker, who is an amateur who is making this run? Were they really just, like, not seeing that for some reason? I Yes. I, I think they literally were not seeing it. Uh, I think that they were so set on having a pro win because that would legitimize the game. This is a game of skill, so we want one of the best players to win it. It's as though, like, if somebody, you know, you walk in off the street and you, like, play for Tom Brady and win the Super Bowl, well, maybe Tom Brady's not that good. Maybe, you know, football's just a joke. So I I don't think that they necessarily recognize that. And he's on screen. He's a pretty boring person, which is good for a poker player. Like, he didn't give off a lot of tells. He didn't give off a lot of emotion. He's just this kind of, like, schlubby white guy from Tennessee. Um, so it was it was hard, I think, for them to imagine that the everyman story was actually the the story that they needed to tell. And and so then let's do a little counterfactual. If this hadn't been the Chris Moneymaker year, if this hadn't been a year where an amateur who's la- again whose last name is Moneymaker actually wins this, does this poker boom happen? I think to an extent it does. I mean, because look, Matt Morantz is is quick to point out. The first two episodes of the show rated very well on ESPN. And Chris Moneymaker is not in episodes one or episode two. Um, So there was something about what they were doing that was compelling regardless of the final result. And this didn't get into the show as well. But the way that they do introduce him, the first time he really has a role on camera is he doesn't realize it's his turn at the poker (laughs) table. And so he's in a stare down with Johnny Chan and this other pro, Howard Letterer. And eventually Johnny Chan or Howard, I forget which one, says – you know, it's your turn. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't even realize That's I had amazing. a hand. And so they, they introduce him as a rube so that he has a sort of fuller arc to superstardom. Right. And I mean, in retrospect, it is the perfect arc. It's almost, frankly, it's, it's almost overwritten. Like if you were pitching this as a fictional piece, you're yeah. saying, hey, this anonymous guy who's broke from Tennessee backdoors his way into this tournament and then goes on to beat all of these famous pros, Johnny Chan, Phil Ivey, Umberto Brennis, and then wins the whole thing. And by the way, we've named him Chris Moneymaker. You'd be like, okay, you have to cut some of those things. It's like a little too on the nose. Um, so this is a story that has been told a fair amount. I mean, it's famous in poker circles. I think it's broken out in in, in that way as well. There's been a number of articles. Uh, Grantland wrote a great piece a while ago that we all read and loved and was was part of the research for this. Yeah, and let's uh, briefly, I want to give I want to give the author of that piece, Eric Raskin, uh, a shout out. If you want to read like a deep, deep, deep dive. Um, He wrote a book called The Moneymaker Effect, which is essentially a 250-page oral history of the 2003 World Series of Poker. So what's new in in our piece for a story that's been told a fair amount? I mean, I think that for us, the real fascination was on the aspect of storytelling. So if you just told the story of Chris Moneymaker winning the 2003 World Series of Poker, you've got a great story. But to me, what was interesting is the way both that this story was put together and packaged and the results that it had in the real world. I think that when you're a journalist, you're sort of constantly having the back of your mind, what effect is this story going to have on what we call the character in the story, right? And so the effect that this story had on Chris Moneymaker was that it completely remade his life, right? It wasn't just the money, um, though that was nice, I'm sure. He essentially became a professional poker spokesperson for the rest of his life. Like right now, as we speak, he's in Reno. He's doing an event for poker stars who still employs him. And that's his life now is to be 
a, a physical embodiment of the dream, basically. Right. And every time he goes out there, he gets a whole bunch of new amateurs, you know, frankly, convinced that they could be him, which is good for poker stars and good for the poker industry. Yeah. So so to go back to your original question, what's what's different? I mean, there's like there's little nuggets in here, I think, that are new if people don't know about his his sort of trying to make the deal with Sam Farhan being rejected. I'm like, man, you know, it's been great. It's been fun. You just want to chop it up and play for it. And then he said, no, honestly, you know, you played really well, but, you know, I think I deserve a little bit more. You know, I'm, I'm an experienced player. I've been, this is what I do. And, and I just remember looking at him dead in the face, and I was pissed when he said that. I said, fuck you. Let's play. I like that moment. Uh, and also the dynamic with his father, I think, is something that's new. And we should point out yeah. his father walked away with $500,000. Oh, why is that? Because, because of that so deal he, they made? He put in $2,000 of the 10000 which entitled him to 20% of the win, which is to say in 20% of $2.5 million, a half million dollars. So his dad came out all right yeah. in the end. Yeah, I'll say so. Uh, one of my other favorite things about this episode is the music that's in it. Um, and we should give a shout out to Mitra Kaboli, who helped uh, engineer and score and mix this thing and make it sound wonderful. We kind of tried to have as our core the same aesthetic music that the actual broadcast of the World Series of Poker used, which is very kind of like, what do you call it? Like, bum, bam, bam, yeah. Bam, bam. <laughs> yeah, like swamp, ronky, sw- swamp rocky uh, kind of uh, guitar type music. Um, but then we, I think we found some music that felt like in that general world, but also helped us kind of tell a, a story with emotion and all these other things. But I just loved that um, the names of the songs that we ended up you using. You just list Yeah, them? I think you should just list them. Bounty Hunter, okay. Mojave Desert, Rattlesnake Soup, Dead Time Blues, Heat. Yeah, I think, and I think Dead Time Blues is actually the song from the World Series of Poker, that famous guitar yeah. riff that when you hear, it makes you sort of want to gamble. <laughs> That is Some Dead Time Blues, America. Yeah, I just love the I just love those names. It's kind of like you can just rattle off those names and know basically what this story is about. It's about cowboys. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, all right, we got to start to wrap up, but I'm but I'm curious. You rattled off some of the big names that we got to talk to for this piece. What was it like to go to Johnny Chan and Doyle Brunson and, of course, Chris Moneymaker? So here's the thing about interviewing poker players. They're happy to talk to you because they know that if people hear stories about poker, they'll want to go play poker, and that's good for their bottom line. But they also don't want to screw up a good game that they're in. So I made a reporting trip earlier this year out to Las Vegas and L.A., and I set up you know, appointments with people. I was calling Johnny Chan on the phone. He's like, sure, 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 I'll meet with you why don't you just call me when you get to town? So I was going to be in Los Angeles for two days, but he was unwilling to like commit to a time Mm -hmm. because he didn't want to ruin a game. And in the end, I ended up meeting him at a casino and he walked away from his game, came upstairs to meet me. Same thing when I go to Las Vegas to track down Doyle Brunson. He agrees in principle to meet with me. I call him, I call him, I call him. He won't answer. I call his house. A woman answers, I think his housekeeper, and says, oh, he's at the Bellagio. So I walk down the strip to the Bellagio, go to Bobby's room, which is the high limit room, introduce myself to the host and say, hey, I'm from ESPN. I'm supposed to talk to Doyle Brunson. Does he know you're coming? Sort of. He goes in. Doyle eventually says I can come in. Doyle Brunson, 84 years old at the time, is playing $1,503,000 mixed games, which is to say everyone at the table has $100,000 in front of them. Uh, I introduce myself. He folds his hand, mid-hand. He's already put, you know, $4,000 into the pot. Total gentleman. We meet the next day. But so for this story, I get to see the biggest poker game I've ever seen in my life, which is to say just another another day at the office yeah. for Doyle. Um, and, and I guess it's good to know that 
these guys, they like to play poker. And that's what they do all day. <laughs> yeah, they really, really do. I mean, some of them burn out, but but the folks like Doyle Brunson, the folks like Johnny Chan, this is their livelihood. This is their life. And it's it's been that way for literally decades. Yeah. And if it's like the thing that you're really good at, then you should probably do it. Yes. Especially if you can walk away with tens of thousands <laughs> yes. of dollars every time you do it. Yeah. All right. Keith Romer, thank you so much. This is fun. And again, your piece is all in sparking the poker boom. I had a blast working on this with you and uh, congratulations. Thank you. Thanks to all of you for listening. And actually, we should we should note one thing. We are going to be in Toronto. If you happen to be listening to this and you are in Toronto or know someone in Toronto, we're going to be there on November 3rd. Keith and I will be there along with Mitra at the Hot Docs Podcast Festival. And we're going to talk about your piece a little bit. And then we'll also play some tape that other people haven't heard. And we'll talk a little bit about our approach to storytelling here at 30 for 30. So it's a great podcast festival happening in Toronto that weekend. Our event is November 3rd. You can find information for that at 30for30podcast.com slash events. Thanks for listening. We've got a new doc coming your way, the third of five episodes this season. So stay tuned to the feed. In the meantime, you can help spread the word. You can go back and listen to previous episodes and previous seasons if you haven't. This season is just getting started. So thanks again. My name is Jody Avergan, and we'll see you soon.